Join us and unwind with a good book. Welcome to Relaxing Reads. Hi, it's Deb in Halifax. Hi, it's Simone in Vancouver. And hey, it's Tanya in Edmonton. Our latest read is Counterfeit by Kirsten Chen. Ava Wong, a straight-laced Chinese-American lawyer, and her former enigmatic college roommate Winnie reconnect after 20 years and become entangled in a scheme that involves importing counterfeit luxury handbags. When trouble arises, Winnie disappears, leaving Ava to deal with the consequences. It's a con artist story, a pop feminist caper taking us through the world of dreamy handbags. Fun, right? Except nothing in this novel is what it seems. This book gives great insight into identity and self-discovery and the ever-elusive American dream. Well, <laughs> this was this well. was quite the novel. Yeah, wh- what did you think, Simone? Well, I this novel came to me as I follow uh, Reese Witherspoon, and I always love her book club pick. So when she was kind of going on about this book, I was like, okay, this would be a great one for our book club. And um, yeah, it just you know caught my attention because it was like Hustlers meets Big Little Lies. So I was like, ooh, this is going to be good and juicy. And it took me a little bit to get into it. And I think Tanya, you had kind of mentioned that as well when we were chatting uh, online. But uh, once I got into it, there was just so many twists and turns. And I felt like I was, you know, it kept me on my toes, kept me wondering what was going to happen. And really, I was surprised by the end of it as to where this novel went. But it was a good ride for sure. <laughs> I was surprised. Yeah, I was surprised too. And and I thought it was a fascinating story. Um, it's something that I know absolutely nothing about. And yeah, getting into it was a little hard because I, you know, I'm so used to punctuation, right? It just tells you everything. <laughs> we all know from the Twitter world that, you know, punctuation does make a difference. <laughs> so it was just a little bit like, who's talking? Oh, they're okay. So, but then once you get it figured out, it becomes relatively easy and you get into the characters. And um, and yeah, I, I just thought, again, it was a world I didn't know anything about. And fashion is is really, um, it's just so cool, you know, how people really get into it. And I just think that, you know, post-COVID, like, I don't even do my hair anymore, anymore let alone makeup. And I'm like, <laughs> Tanya, you got to up your game here, you know? So if anything, this novel was like, Tanya, pay attention to fashion because it actually makes a difference how you look. (laughs) So yeah, fascinating read for me, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I felt uh, initially getting into it was a a little, it took a a bit of time for me as well. But I got a bit of a high. I I don't know why. I found it very exhilarating. There was a bit of an adrenaline rush and I, I love fashion. But I'm definitely not a fashionista. I am far from it. So I admire people who are, you know, in their game or at the top of their game as far as fashion goes and the knowledge um, that comes with it. I had no idea until this book um, what it was all about, you know, the counterfeit purse market, uh, that there is such a thing. I mean, uh, we hear about knockoffs and there's scams and absolutely everything um, around us. But, yeah, I found this... Um, quite exhilarating. Yeah. And I've just, um, you know, the whole counterfeit business, I'm not a purse person, but I think I am now. You know, what was interesting <laughs> is, I, is I actually went and looked at looked for the purse. Yeah, look for the purse. I went on, I, I think I went on Amazon. And it gave me a couple images. And then the Amaz, uh, the Kelly bag, it came up. $41,000. Yeah. See, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right, I see. no wonder people go like with one to what they call them one to ones in the book. And I'm like, 
Yeah. No wonder. I'm definitely crazy. I'm definitely a bag person. Like I am a bag collector and I have a few designer bags, but this is one of those things that I've been collecting for like 20 years. And it happens like if it's a milestone, like I bought myself a nice bag when I turned 30 or, you know, my husband bought me one when I had my son, like things like that. So they're kind of like, for me, it's one of those like, okay, I did something important or I had a milestone in my career or in my life and I purchased them and I like to have them, but I don't have a lot. So when I see people with new bags constantly online uh, or social media, now this mm-hmm. book has me wondering, are they authentic? Because how do you, like, unless all of your paychecks are going there, um, how do you afford that? And it's totally the status. And for me, like, I've collected the classics that I know won't go out of style. Um, but when you get into the trendy bags, like that's that's a tough world to keep up with because there's always a new it bag every month when it comes to the world of fashion. So I don't even know how you would keep up with that kind of an expense. Well, just in West Edmonton Mall, like where, where, where our stations are, are sort of at the pricey end of the mall. And my goodness, there are some stores, I can't get them, I can't remember what the names are, but that are at this end of the mall that I just sort of waltz by and I look in the windows and I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, there's no way, there's no way I can afford that. And it's, it's, it's just so crazy to think that, that, that people, you know, the really, really, we're talking thousands of dollars, right? Like, mm-hmm. how does yeah. anyone do that? And, and, and Simone, to your point, like, you got bags to mark an occasion, right? It's a special event. And it's sort of like, you know, why do people want these bags? And, and even further, if you can't tell the difference between a fake one and a real one, like, what is that? I don't know. I know. And that's like <laughs> no. when I was in, and for me, it's like, that's the intention, right? Like I'll set aside, if I want this, I'm going to set aside this amount of dollars. It could be for, you know, whatever your lifestyle, you know, what you want. So what if, whether it's that amazing yeah. trip you want to go on, you're going to put money aside for it, right? And then once you get it or you go there, it's a moment for you to say, hey, I did it. Um, and when when I was in New York, um, And this is the thing, I don't buy a lot of bags for that reason. They're expensive. And when I was in New York, this woman uh, held up a bag and it was like this St. Laurent bag. And she's like, here, I'll give it to you. And And it looked like an exact replica of an amazing St. Laurent bag. And I was like, how much is it? She's like 50 bucks. She And I was like, what? She's like, I'll give it to you for 40, wow. for 30. And my husband was like, keep walking. <laughs> and I was like, Medim, it's like 30 bucks. And he was like, yeah. I know, but it's going to fall apart. And, you know, when you carry the knockoff, it's not going to bring you as much joy as if you just take your time to save up for something you want. And then it's that moment of you did it. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I, I see it. And, um, and I get it. Like now when you're, you know, you see, people on social media and you're constantly thrust in that spotlight of all these things people consume and they buy and people are trying to keep up with the Joneses, then it's hard to do when you're on a limited budget. So that is probably why the counterfeit business survives because people want to, you know, like Tanya, you talked about fashion, it plays such a big part. It's your art, it's your expression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you can't afford a $4,000 bag, and you're going to buy a $40 bag that nobody would know, then this is why people do it, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It's you, like, you become uh, obsessed the, with it, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and they mentioned in the book how, you know, well, why do people get these bags? And they say it's like a status symbol. It's like saying, I went to Harvard, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can afford this bag. This definitely sets you apart. And I think, you know, one of the things uh, that surprised me about this book is 
the intricate level that they get to in those black markets of making these bags where they they literally take apart the real thing piece by piece and then they go and build the build the counterfeit and I'm like oh my goodness like the I I didn't go to that area in New York that you're talking about Simone and but I've been to LA like downtown LA and I've been in some of those like it's just it's such a weird it almost is like a black market down there and I'm like Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Pretty naive at the time. But now I'm like, that's totally what is happening down there. Yeah. And yeah. I know, and it's like people say, oh, well, the designer luxury labels, they make so much money. So what does it matter? But then it's that whole point of, you know, they're they're catering to a certain group of people, the elite who have mm-hmm. that status in the world, but then there's regular people who are like, Well, I want to have that status, right? So it just it's I mean, like, it's tough. And I think better than getting into the world of counterfeits, like, resale is so big. So I know that so many, like, consignment shops have popped up that deal with these luxury bags for, you know, a a quarter of the cost or something like that. And I think that's a better route to take because you're still going to get that quality. And if you need something fixed, like, you know, something in your counterfeit falls apart, um, like that one case in the book, the lady took the bag back, um, they're not, you're not getting it repaired. And you could have paid a couple hundred dollars for it. Whereas if you just went to consignment, paid a little bit more, you can still take it to that luxury um, brand and get the strap replaced or get a zipper replaced and just have it longer. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm more yeah, of the, the exactly. consignment type girl. I love bags, but I, I don't have any brands. Um, I love the look of so many of the brands, but I've just I just haven't gone there yet. But I do love the idea of consignment. But yeah, I think it's a very obsessive thing that once you get into it's it's hard to kind of move away from it you become part of this i don't know this culture right yeah and you know like mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. my husband doesn't get it when i'm like oh so and so bought that bag or so and so has this one and he's like i don't get it and i'm like yeah but a bag is a part of my everyday like i carry it you bring your stuff exactly. in it my purse like it's it's something you don't leave the house without so it's an important thing for us to consider that somebody else um may not consider if you don't carry bags right right so, I mean maybe yeah. it's a car for somebody else you know a, a specific sports car or you know something there's, yeah. there's everybody something. has their thing everyone has their thing and like you said addictive like it could be like getting a tattoo you get one and now I've heard you you want multiples I don't have any tattoos but that's how it exactly it starts you buy something mm-hmm. it makes you feel good you take care of that item and then you're like okay well maybe in a couple of years I'm gonna buy another one <laughs> you know? yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, like for me, so, it's cars. Like I, I, I love sports cars, and I, and I have one, and and you know, hopefully before I'm sixty, I can get the ultimate one. Um, but it's just like I have so much fun driving that car. Yeah, and it's just like a part of me, and so I get this whole thrill. You know, the purse thing, the yeah. thrill, yeah, of it. the high. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was like that moment in the book where she, there was that uh, they talk about that crocodile red Birkin bag, and it was just the yes. moment it came out on the table. So, like you said, whatever that is for you, a car driving by or like an amazing glass of wine like whatever your thrill is this is what you're going to chase yeah Yeah. you know and it's so funny because I I have notes in my iPhone and like at one point I was thinking you know Tanya really you should get some iconic pieces you know and I actually had written in my iPhone because I went and checked it it was a Burberry trench coat which is over $3,500 and uh, an Hermes scarf over $500 and I had the Birkin purse, but I didn't know what it was really. I just knew it was Birkin, right? I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. But now oh. this book has opened my eyes to that industry of purses and I'm getting a real understanding and an appreciation for what it's all about. 
yeah, the real yeah. stuff and and the one to ones. Like it's fascinating. And I know yeah. s- some people break it down for like cost per wear, right? So say you're going to spend, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars on a bag, and it seems like a lot. Um, or over the course of those ten years, you're going to buy like a hundred or two hundred dollar bag. Um, and so people say, "But I will carry my nice one every single day." So when you break it down, it's like a dollar a day for this many days, and it's paid off by that point. And I just love it so much. And same with that trench coat. Like if you're an adult, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you've already grown. It's not like kids; you have to buy them something new every year. Um, um, and yeah. you know you're going to take care of that Burberry trench coat for the yes. rest of your life. And it's just, it's there. It's a staple. It's an iconic piece. And like I said, spending on the staples as opposed to trendy items is the better route. Actually, yeah. I kind right. of I kind of agree with you. I'm, I'm sort of at the point now where I see stores and uh, and I'm like, oh my goodness, that is just trash clothing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not going to go into it a lot because I know that, you know, it takes a lot of water to make clothing. And I'm like, okay, Tanya, like... Go get the go get the good white T-shirt, you know, go get the good go get as good as you can afford because, you know, it's not throwaway clothing. And I don't like that that whole, Mm -hmm. you know, that throwaway clothing that is out there. I know there has to be clothing for every price point and for everybody, but I'm going to choose to not go to those stores that it's just en masse and it's just like the fast fashion. Yeah, a lot of fast fashion. I don't agree with it. So don't agree with it, you know, even and I think it might be something that will come up in the next 20 years that it doesn't exist anymore. And I really hope that's the case. <laughs> but that's the truth. Those A lot of those pieces from fast fashion are knockoffs of designer pieces and they're coming out exactly. really quick. So you see a right. celebrity yeah. wearing something incredible and you're like, wow, I love that dress, but I can't afford that dress. So then you go on to those fast fashion websites and that dress is like $50 and you're like, I can get the look for less. And I know you you're right. It. So it's all, look for less. it's all based on like that counterfeit concept of not having the real thing. And I wonder if, you know, talking about consignment shops, if if that's why there are so many more than ever before. And when you walk in Mm. and talk to the the shopkeeper, the, you know, whoever's running the boutiques, um, they have a lot of knowledge about all of these pieces. So you wonder, had they had a hand in working in that industry prior to opening up their own consignment shops and know the value of the product that they're putting out, you know, so when they're, they're, they're buying from people who are dropping off or they got their use, they got however many years out of it, if that's perhaps why they, they want to kind of stop um, those other shops from, from doing what they're doing yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Certainly like the higher end consignment shops, there's a lot here, you know, the, the people who run them, they know what they're doing. I mean, you, I can take stuff there and I'm thinking, oh, this is pretty good. And they're like, nope, nope, nope. And they know what they're looking for. They're looking for quality. They're looking for brands that sell you know, so it's the whole fashion industry is amazing. Actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether it, you guys ever is. worked like retail, you know, when you were young. I mean, I certainly did. I worked at Le Chateau and sold shoes oh. to strippers. It was awesome because they would buy like 10 colors of the same shoe. I'm like, made my quota. Um, but, you know, oh it's I, I find fashion really, really kind of funny. So getting back to like so the book, like. Who did you guys like, Ava or Winnie? Like, because it switches in terms of you think it's it's like Winnie's the bad person, 
And then it switches, and then you get Winnie's <laughs> point of view, and like, oh my goodness, I what know. is going on? <laughs> That's exactly it. I liked Ava, and I was like, oh my god, you know, she's the, a new mom. Her hormones are all over the place. She's getting caught up yes. in the scandal. And then when you get to the end, I was like, whoa. And then Winnie had the soft spot for you know her boss, who she treated like an elderly uh, or like a father figure, and you're yeah. like, oh, she she has a bit more of a soul. <laughs> she actually cares, yeah. and she had a bad family life. So she had to get into this world. But I'm like, Ava, really, you didn't have any big problems that led you to that world. You kind of had a okay upbringing. You had some quarrels with your family and stuff, but it yeah. seemed like it wasn't as bad. But yeah, it switched for me, definitely. I was team Ava in the beginning and then team Winnie. And at the end, I was team Maria. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. Oh, Maria. Oh, wasn't oh, she Oh, my fun? gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All very Absolutely. endearing characters. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, I, I was definitely Ava initially. And then when things were unfolding and we learned so much more, she kind of reminded me of, um, what was her name? Anna Delvey um, oh. from In- Inventing oh. Anna. Oh, yes. Um, yes. At, and how you get into whatever you believe is happening. You know, I guess you, you tell so many fibs, so many lies that you start to believe them and you get better at telling those stories or telling it as you believe it happened. And that's how I kind of felt with Ava. And Winnie was kind of, you know, abrupt or in your face. She she told it like it is, but she wasn't as as warm initially, I, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I did love Winnie. Um, but yeah, interesting characters. Absolutely. Like I, I was sort of Ava. I mean, I didn't know what really what was going on. When it did the switch, I'm like, Ava's not telling the truth what What, what's going on then you get Winnie's point of view I like Winnie because she was just this I just felt she was very real and then I sort of got with Ava like who's the who's the businesswoman here right Mm -hmm. who's the one who's like really making uh, making things happen and and for me I kind of thought that was Ava at the end of the day you know I mean she's in a career that she doesn't even want she doesn't even like being a lawyer but because of her upbringing, I think it was written in the book that, you know, there are three professions that a Chinese family says you should go into, law, medicine, and engineering. Pick one and do it well enough until you retire. There's nothing about happiness in there. So I'm like, okay, so she picked the lawyer, but she didn't really want to do it. Um, and then she's got this other adventure. So when it the book flipped for me, I'm like, oh, wow, that's what Ava's really like. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> and it was so interesting that it was like, wh- and whenever I thought I kind of knew what was going on, like my mind would wander. Like there were times where when Winnie would meet up with Ava's husband, I was like, are they having an affair? Is something going on the there? Because yeah, like, I thought that, yeah. she would know, Ava would say something and she'd be like, oh, I already talked to him and that's not happening or this and that. And she'd be like, how does she know? And I was like, mm-hmm. is that why he got the place far away from home? Like, what's, what's going to happen here in this dynamic? Or is she setting Ava up to go to jail so she can end up with her husband? Like, my mind yeah. was all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was floored when, when Ava went home and her husband cut her off. Oh, yeah. Remember? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like, I was like, I, I had to stop reading. I'm like, who does that? Yeah. <laughs> who cuts off your finances? Oh, my goodness. And that just that like crazy. a little bit of that was like their relationship was 
immature in that way at times, mm. right? Like just it was picking yeah. the fights and that kind of thing. So I'm like, maybe Ava, again, she's struggling with having this difficult child for now. Like he's a young boy. So she's got a lot of things with him. She doesn't have a lot of support from the husband. And then this excitement comes into her life. And it's the it's that thrill we're talking about chasing that like, ooh, I get to be somebody my parents and d- didn't want me to be or, you know, and it's just it's her, she's coming out in a different way. I think this is her her little outlet of being a little bit dangerous and not being a boring mom and wife who's lost her identity since she's left her career. Right. I think yeah, on paper absolutely. they looked really good as a couple, but perhaps that was it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Her son was and, and, quite the I, I was I was trying to figure out what was wrong with him. <laughs> Actually. Yeah, I was what was to figure going out what was on wrong with Ava's son? What was going on there? You know, like did he have some some challenges, you know, that they just weren't aware of. And yet her husband's this surgeon. So shouldn't he know? But I don't know. That, that was an interesting part of the whole story was the, the, the challenges that their their son had. Or it's just yeah. the terrible mm. twos. <laughs> or it could or, be. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and how about the, the friendship that they had together, Ava and Winnie? What What did you think about that? Well, at first, I thought they were going to throw each other under the bus. Like, I thought there was going to be something like they had a great friendship. Well, not sorry, not a great friendship, but they kind of had an understanding and they were friends. And then they got into this business idea and it kind of went back and forth. And then there was a moment at the end where I thought, okay, Winnie's going to completely throw Ava under the bus and just set her up for everything. And she's going to get caught or Ava setting Winnie up. So I was like, this friendship is going to dissolve. It's done like after this. But when you get to the end of the book... This friendship is just getting stronger. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I think they just, they just sort of like, what are those couples that are codependent, right? I kind of think that they are a little bit, you know, one doesn't exist without the other. They both need each other on some level. And obviously that continues at the end of the book and for how long we don't know. So I thought that that was really interesting, the dynamic of, of that friendship, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. I think they yeah. both needed each other for for a lot of things. Yeah, no, exactly. And then sort of, you know, in book three and you and you find out that uh, that Winnie's gone that extra step of getting cosmetic surgery to completely change her look. Yeah, that was uh-huh. that was like I'm like, would I ever, I, I would never do that. Do people do that? Yes, people <laughs> maybe do a, that. Maybe that's do a that. question for yeah. the author. You think, yeah, because yeah. you think about mm. if you're a wanted person and someone's looking for you and you don't want to get caught, you're going to do things to change your appearance. See, Tanya, you don't think mm-hmm. about these things because you're not living in the criminal underworld. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike you're Simone right. and, and myself. I'm not a <laughs> but I think that's yeah. why I have a collection of wigs. I haven't gone the route of the surgery route yet, but I've got a lot of wigs. <laughs> you're safe because we see you post on Instagram with your wigs. So you're not hiding well, from anyone. Well, this is true. Very true. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> um, and, and so we, we kind of talked a bit about the ending. Um, what do you think mm-hmm. will happen with this next adventure, this next business venture that they've got coming up? I, you know what? The fact that they say they're going to use men now. Like, I, yes. don't, I didn't understand yeah. that part. Like, you know, do they feel like, you know, the women didn't really lead, uh, it wasn't successful enough? But like how sometimes I feel like men 
women can sometimes be smarter than men when it comes to a lot of things. So I don't know how this is going to work. And if again, they'll just, they've once, uh, you know, if they've evaded the police once, they could do it again. Maybe that's their mindset. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think they might, they kind of learned how not to do it. And so they might actually be successful. I think they're going to do it. Like I, I think they are. I think they'll they'll go as far as they can, and then there'll be a slip up, and they'll you know they're slippery. I think they're going to get out of it somehow and, and go on to something else. I I just see this thing kind of continuing, and and to the to the thing about the men, like I can kind of see it. You know, uh, a sharp I don't say sharp dressed man, <laughs> but I just did a good looking. <laughs> You know, mid-30s guy who's very professional, has an air of confidence. I mean, I get that they would be very believable. Yeah, you know? perhaps. So, like, and, um, and just society-wise, I just think that there's that layer of like the successful guy. And I mean, certainly we see it within businesses and they get paid more than women do. You know, that's starting to change, but it's still there. It's yeah. still there. So I just think mm-hmm. that there's like that, that confidence, that acceptance of the well-dressed, confident guy, you know, and that you don't need, you don't need to question him. I think it's a smart or, move in that diamond, that business that they're in now. Or if it, if all doesn't go according to their plan, perhaps they're also thinking, Thelma and Louise and that guy can be Brad Pitt's, you know, character they'll pick up and, and, and tra- you know, travel that way, go that route. So yeah. then we think about this novel being adapted for television. Yeah. Like Brad Pitt in this. Oh, that'd yeah. be awesome. Well, you <laughs> yes. know, this book left a lot of kind of questions open. So a great time to chat with Kirsten herself and get some of those questions answered uh, that we have. Absolutely. Yeah. Counterfeits author herself, Kirsten Chen, is with us. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm thrilled to be here. I always love, um, it's always fun meeting with people who have already read the book, and then we don't have to be so careful about spoilers. So this is a treat for me. Oh, well, you must say it is a treat that you have come up with. So thank you for writing this. How how did you come up with the concept for Counterfeit? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a question I get a lot because it's such a seemingly random topic. (laughs) Counterfeit luxury (laughs) handbags. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of novel writing is just kind of paying attention to ideas and and kind of sniffing out the good ones. Um, And in all honesty, the idea for this novel started as a joke. Um, A couple of years ago, I was working on my last novel, which is a very different book. It's called Bury What We Cannot Take. Um, It was set in 1950s southern China. It's historical fiction. It required an incredible amount of research. And um, I remember after a particularly grueling day of work, I turned to my spouse and I said, "Um, listen, the next book that I write is going to require zero research, and it's going to have to be about the only topic I'm already an expert in, and that's designer handbags. And, you know, we laughed. (laughs) Um, Neither of us took it seriously. I kind of forgot about the idea. Um, And then a couple months later, I came across an article in the Washington Post Um, that described a real-life counterfeit handbag con artist who had this seemingly perfect scheme. And I read that scheme, and I thought, this belongs in a novel. And that kind of, that really planted the seeds for the book when I realized that it was not about 
designer handbags, but it was actually about counterfeit designer handbags. You know, what's interesting, I was telling uh, Tanya and Deb this, I myself love designer handbags, but I was telling them I've kind of collected them over 20 years because it takes a lot of time to save up and I do it for milestone moments, like, you know, a 30th birthday or when my son was born. Um, But then you you see how they're so expensive. And then I was in New York recently and and someone was trying to send me, sell me a St. Laurent bag for $40 and it looked legit. (laughs) And then I was like, what? Like this, this is still so around because it's that whole status thing, um, you know, with the bags. And now it's like, how do you even tell what's real and what's fake? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's a big question in the book is what makes something counterfeit and what makes something authentic, especially as um, the quality of counterfeits has really improved rapidly in the past, like, let's say, decade or two decades. Technology has really improved. The counterfeits are getting better and better. And the price tags of counterfeits are, are very high, you know, for the really, really good um, so-called super fakes. Um, but like you, Simone, you know, um, I have started to question my love of handbags. You know, I, too, am a, a, a deep love. I have a deep love of handbags. I, too, use it to mark um, milestone, my, uh, you know, milestone moments, as you say. Um, and it's actually now that I've started doing publicity for this book and I have to talk a lot about my love of handbags that I've actually started to, to interrogate it. You know, I think prior to going on tour for this book, my love of handbags was very pure and unequivocal. And now, you know, I'm starting to see the contradictions, the, the conflicts, the um, I'm starting to question why I love you know, this particular product so deeply. And you know what? I think it gets hard to keep up. There's a new it bag almost every month and you can't have them all. Like you can either buy the classics and and feel like those will take you through life. But I think it's just become a world where, you know, with social media and Instagram, everybody wants to have the it bag and it gets hard to keep up. And that's why I think the counterfeit business is still thriving so much. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think with age, too, I've seen that, you know, you get this kind of the Internet does see this urge where you see something and you have this this like overwhelming sensation. Like, I must have that. And then, you know, a week or two later, if you can kind of take a step back, you realize, oh, I didn't really want it that much. You know, that kind of fleeting desire um, was really an illusion um, or, you know, or exactly that fleeting. And so, I mean, I'm interested, too, in just. Um, consumerist culture, why we consume what we consume. Um, you know, all of us spend money on particular things, um, and it's very easy to kind of judge what other people choose to spend money on. Um, and so I'm interested in that as well. And um, obviously social media exacerbates that because we're constantly exposed to what people are buying. Absolutely. Yeah. And I and I, and I think you, you mentioned something, Kirsten, about, you know, what – if you can't tell the difference between a real bag and a counterfeit bag, what is the what is the value of a bag then? You know, like what yeah. would you, you know, and and what about the person, you know, the one who can afford the real thing and the person who goes to New York and and gets the you know the fifty dollar Saint bag? Um, like how do they feel knowing that they're carrying a counterfeit? Did you ever did you come across yeah. any of that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's kind of one of the uh, deeper philosophical questions, if you will. Um, you know, when you look at these super fakes that cost that are made from the same materials that are um, sometimes made in in um, 
factories by people who have worked on the authentic merchandise. Um, and, you know, I've heard experts say that with these really, really high-quality fakes, sometimes the only thing distinguishing an authentic bag from a counterfeit bag um, is a serial number that the brands have implanted into the authentic bag simply so that they can tell it apart from these super fakes. And so, yes, if all that... Um, if all that differentiates them is the serial number, what makes something real and what makes something fake, um, what gives something its value. Um, you know, I was thinking there, um, I think often of a line that um, Winnie, one of the characters in the book, says to Ava, um, and she says, you know, your, um, my Birkin bag is not so different from your Stanford degree. <laughs> and, and Ava mm, is kind of yeah. really offended by this. And she's like, what are you talking about? The two things have, have nothing in common. Um, but I think that, you know, the point with the kind of provocative point Winnie is making is the biggest value that both those things have is that it signals who you are to the world in a big way, that people take that signal, give that, sig- that symbol value. And I don't want to digress too much, but... Um, I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about um, these studies that come out every year or every couple of years um, where social scientists track um, high school seniors who have, say, gotten into Harvard. I don't know if you've come across any of these studies, but every couple of years, media kind of reports on them. So they track high school students who are admitted to Harvard, and half of them go to Harvard, and the other half um, decide to go to a cheaper state school. And then 10 years later, the researchers come back to see how successful those students are. And invariably, both groups of students, the ones that got into state, that decided to go to state school and the ones that went to Harvard, are almost equally successful, which obviously raises the question, well, is it the Harvard education that is valuable or is that Harvard is admitting the best students from the beginning? And so therefore, at the, you know, when they graduate, they're still the best. You know, and so that's kind of a very concrete example of, um, of uh, why a college education might not be as wor- worth as much as society says it is. And so, you know, um, it's very easy to say handbags are frivolous, Harvard is not frivolous. But really, if you dig deeper, everything is more complicated than it seems. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's, I guess it's like winning the, the state championship or getting that that crown. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What does it mean to be a winner? What does it mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that we're always looking for ways to kind of slot people into easy categories. Um, and of course, the truth is always more complicated. Yes, definitely. Uh, it was very interesting how how it was narrated first by Ava and then switching to Winnie. Why was it that you, you took that route for the book? Yeah, yeah. The point of view shifts are maybe the most noticeable craft aspect of the book. Um, I think that I, as a writer, have always thought of point of view as a really interesting tool for creating suspense, right? I think that point of view, um, you know, each character can only know what they know. That's the interesting thing about point of view. You know, if, you're, if you don't have an omniscient narrator, this kind of God-like narrator who can see all and can tell you what everyone is thinking, then each point of view is necessarily limited. And so I'm always interested in how people keep secrets from each other, on how people say one thing to someone else, but then think another thing in their heads. Like that's always been um, one of the most exciting aspects about writing fiction, because um, fiction is really the only art form where you can really get deep into your characters' heads, 
right? Like if you're watching a movie, um, you can see the actor's expression and you can hear the words they're saying, but you very seldom get their thoughts unless there's some kind of voiceover narration, you know, which is a pretty kind of specific conceit. And so, you know, the most exciting thing about literature and fiction has always been um, interiority and interior thoughts. And so I think that was kind of my approach with this book, was thinking about how using Ava's point of view and Winnie's point of view uh, and, and switching its strategic times could really be a tool for suspense. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. I, I got the, I was reading it. I'm like, yes, it is true. There are two sides to every story. <laughs> <laughs> and also, nobody's the villain of their own story, right? Like, you know, we can, there's a villain, there's, you know, some books have very clear villains, but if you switch the narrator and had the villain tell their side, they would be the hero, not the villain. They would have, they would completely justify what it is that they're doing, you know, unless they're a complete sociopath. But um, <laughs> point, yeah, I've always, I've always loved point of view for that reason. Now, Kirsten, at first, you know, the book is a con game thriller, but it ends up having a lot more larger themes. So was the starting point to write it as a thriller or to write about these bigger ideas that we find out about uh, kind of mid book? Yeah, you know, I think the bigger ideas were always front and center for me. Like, I don't think I would have set out to write a crime novel without the bigger ideas already in place. Um, I don't um, consider myself a crime writer. You know, like I mentioned earlier, my last novel was historical fiction. Um, My first novel was more of a coming-of-age book. Uh, And so, you know, I'm not kind of an expert at the crime genre. Uh, So really what was interesting to me about about this particular crime story was these questions of what is real and what is not. You know, what is, um, what does it mean to be an authentic person? Um, when you layer on complications of race, especially if you're um, a woman and uh, a person of color, um, you know, a minority, uh, belonging to a minority group, you're constantly performing, right? You're constantly thinking about how other people view you. Like, that's just how you survive in a society where people are different from you. Um, and I think that was really the starting point for me was um, these are two women who are forced into a particular role by the society that they live in. They're viewed in a very particular way. They're told that if they behave in a particular way, this is the, you know, these are the rewards that will come to them. Um, and what happens when they kind of start to see around that myth, that model minority myth that they've been sold. I, I liked one part in the book. It was uh, it was when they were in the department store and there was like an older woman who was done up to the nines that everybody kind of knew and she kind of just you know doesn't have a really good attitude towards Winnie and Ava and then and then Winnie goes well yeah there's over a billion of us we're everywhere have a nice day (laughs) (laughs) I love that I laughed out loud I'm like yeah (laughs) because there's that attitude right from yes, yes, you know absolutely. that's just there yeah um, like are you yeah, supposed I mean, to be here in the united states i don't know it's like this weird vibe right it's i think it's an attitude that people of color are very familiar with but mm-hmm. i also you know in that i'm so glad you brought up that particular moment because i was also thinking about how ava and winnie would have different reactions to that woman's of, you know, rather offensive statements. So she kind of um, mistakes Winnie for somebody else. Um, and then when Winnie yeah. says, 
um, you know, that's not me. I don't even live in this city. The woman says, oh, well, you know, there's so many of you. You know, they're all so many of you shop here. Um, And Ava is really offended. And Winnie kind of laughs it off. Um, And I was thinking a lot, too, about how their different backgrounds would shape their reactions to that scene. So Ava is born and raised in the U.S., as you say. Um, She grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, which is this predominantly white, upper-middle-class suburb. And so she's kind of been taught to assimilate, or she's worked to assimilate her entire life, versus Winnie, who comes from China as a college student. So she comes from a place that is the largest country in the world. It's an economic powerhouse. Everybody looks and talks like her. And so she has an ease and a security that Ava will never have. You know, like she has the, a sense of place, and so she can laugh it off versus Ava, who um, is already home and has to kind of make her home here. You know, she is much more like we have to change this woman's perspective. We cannot allow this to slide. Um, and so I'm interested. I was interested, too, in the differences between these two women who on the surface could look similar, you know, both Asian-American, both high achieving, both of a certain socioeconomic status. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, Kristen, this isn't your first book. So what did it feel like when you got chosen to be, uh, you know, Reese Witherspoon's book club? (laughs) Was that like, was that like a, like? (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, I could still access that euphoria that I felt in the moment that I, that I learned, you know, it really is, um, I don't know, maybe one of the top three or five things that could ever happen to a writer, you know, like it's that life or that career changing, let's say. I, um, so to back up, it was, you know, it was euphoric. It was exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, It has, um, it has brought my book to the widest audience that I've ever reached by far. Um, And I will also say that I'm very grateful that it happened for my third book. You know, I think um, it would have been wonderful to have a debut novel that was out of the gate, an overwhelming success. But I think that that would have been quite difficult to deal with as a writer. You know, I've, I've heard writers talk about the pressure that they feel after having a really big debut. And that, you know, sometimes you have writer's block. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to start a second book because there's all, you know, now the expectations are, are very, very high. Um, and for me, because this happened with my third book, I think I have a sense of perspective. Um, I have a very strong sense of what I love about my job, which is really getting to write books and, <laughs> and hopefully mm-hmm. reaching the people that you're writing toward. You know, like it's a, I, I have a very kind of simple, pure view of my role as a writer and I think that has equipped me to stay pretty centered in spite of all these wonderful, exciting things that have happened with this third book. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and, you know, once readers get to know you through counterfeit, then they go back and read your other books and think, oh, OK. So maybe the, <laughs> the expectations are, are going to be a little might be a little different because you're writing has been different. It's not, you know, if this was your first and you and you get this stamp of approval, then perhaps people will be expecting the next one to be the exact, you know, same type. 
Yes, that's a very good point as well. Yes, I think, um, and I think that as a younger writer, it's very difficult to not give in to that pressure, you know, because you've already built an audience, you know what the what readers want from you, like, obviously, you want your next book to be successful. So I think it is hard to kind of withstand that and say, well, despite the pressure to do something similar, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and do whatever project it is I want to do. And you're right, I do have I do have that. I, I already have that history. Um, I've been very fortunate that my that my agent and my editors have always been supportive of me kind of changing gears with each book. So I, I you know, any writer would be fortunate to be in my position, but I feel extra lucky that it happened when it happened. One last question, Kirsten. Um, so when you read this book, it speaks to you as if you could see it unfolding in front of your eyes. And it has been picked up for a TV series. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, Yes. I mean, what I've learned about Hollywood in the brief time that I've been involved in this is that everything is confidential. (laughs) That is one thing they tell you until it is announced. It hasn't happened. Um, But it has been incredibly gratifying to talk to um, different producers and different studios and to see... um, how much this story has resonated with them. You know, when I, when I started writing this book, um, I had a very clear audience in mind. I, I, I knew that I was writing this book for the Asian American community here in the U.S. You know, I was talking to my friends, to my um, family. You know, I knew who, who, um, who my exact target audience was. And so it was quite surprising to get this kind of incredible response, you know, that, that and to, to and I've so appreciated how widely this book has resonated. Um, and so to give you a more concrete example related to the TV adaptation, um, during my, uh, when my film agent set up my first meeting with studio executives and producers, um, I was so prepared for them to ask me to change the race of one of my characters. Because I had never seen a TV show with two Asian American women leads. And these aren't, you know, women in the same family. They're just two separate Asian American women leads. And I just had not really seen that on TV. And so I was kind of preparing myself. Okay, if they say, you know, they want to change Winnie's race or Ava's race, what are you prepared to accept? And to my surprise, every single group that I talked to understood immediately that the ethnicity of the women was inextricably linked to the story. That you could not tell this story without two Mm -hmm. Asian American women. And and they were committed to finding um, Chinese or or, uh, Chinese American actors. They, you know, down to the, they they want, they were going to find an Asian American showrunner, an Asian American director. Like they all understood that this story would be different if they didn't respect that part of it. And so I was so impressed by that, you know, and I'm so grateful that there are movies like Crazy Rich Asians to to kind of Mm -hmm. pave the way because I know that has made a huge difference. You know, I know that if we had gone on submission a year earlier or two years earlier before that movie proved to be such a success, um, it would not have been the same environment. And so it just shows how, you know, a couple 
small, uh, not a couple of small, but you know, one movie could really make a huge difference for an entire community. And I and I hope that it's here to stay, that it isn't just a trend. Yeah, no, yeah. that's so important. Representation mm-hmm. matters. And it's, you know, it's yeah. taken a long time for, you know, many races and ethnicities to make their mark in that world. But it's it's starting to happen. The shift is happening. And so, yeah, that's great that, that uh, they, they weren't asking you to change things. Because obviously, you know, you wrote certain characters in mind and it would, you know, it's not easy to just change how you've envisioned your character to be. Yes, yes. Because, I mean, our backgrounds are are, you know, a huge part of who we are in the world, right? Like, to to change somebody's race would be to change them completely. Exactly. Yeah. Well, take credit uh, in in the work that you've presented to them, because it's it's something else. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, if if this TV show ever gets made, I hope it, you know, continues to open doors for for the writers and the filmmakers and the showrunners that come after, because, you know, a few of us can make a uh, can make a big difference. Definitely. Thank you so much, Kristen, for talking with us today. Absolutely. Again, love the book. And uh, yeah, enjoyed our chat. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the questions. These were so thoughtful and fun. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much, Kristen. It was a it was a fascinating read for sure. Appreciate it. Okay, take care, everyone. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. 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 Thank you for kicking back and relaxing with us. We hope you'll join us again on Relaxing Reads.